0: Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.
1: Hello. This is the Britflix FryFest Fest Pre-Series 2019. The podcast comes absolutely free, so can I ask a favour? I urge everyone to go over to my iTunes page, Stitcher page, SoundCloud page or Spotify page or whatever podcast medium you're using to listen and please rate and review us. You can just rate us. They all have star meters which can be clicked on in absolutely no time at all. Just click on it and you're done and it'll be really helpful, trust me. The higher the star meter, the more reviews we get, the more ratings we get, the more the BritFlix.com podcast goes up the charts. Please, please, please. Come on, I'm begging you now. Everyone listening, go to iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud or Spotify pages, type BritFlix.com podcast and rate us. And if you've got a little bit more time on your hands, why not review us as well? Just two or three words of praise will do the world of good. It's really simple and really quick. Now on with the show. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name is Stuart Wright, and this is the Frightfest 2019 preview series. This episode's guests are co writers Matt Black and Lawrence Venicelli. Welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having us.
1: Hello, hello. Hello. <sighs> so, you guys, as I say, you're co writers, you co wrote the film Porno, which is playing at Frightfest. So, before we do any more, I'll put a link in the show notes to tell people times and places um, and tickets and things. But to entice people to click on that link, do you wanna, does one of you want to give us a brief synopsis to what Porno is about?
0: Okay. Well, it's uh, it's a it takes place in 1992 uh, at a movie theater, mm-hmm. and it's about five. Kids who are sort of – or teenagers who are uh, – grew up in a very repressed Christian town mm-hmm. um, who are a bit bored and, and searching and they end up finding this old film reel in the basement uh, that they think might be pornography and when they watch it, uh, when they project it in one of the movie theaters, they unleash a succubus that uh, proceeds to terrorize them for the rest of the movie.
1: Now, um, before we go into detail about you guys co-writing it and both being exec producers on the project, uh, it's 20 years of Frightfest this year. So I'm asking all the guests, uh, what do they remember of their 20th year? Any, any standout moments or incidents that they want to reflect on? So who wants to go first?
2: I heard, uh, I was thinking uh, when... Uh, when you said this initially, I initially was thinking of 20 years ago uh, rather than my 20th year, which is, you know, a, a haze at best. Um, but I was just thinking, you know, 20 years ago was um, was Y2K, and I, it was just, like, such a weird formative year from, for cinema. It was, like, I think The Matrix and Fight Club and, like, Office Space all came out. It was, like, a weird, like, moment of, uh, like... Uh, the, of like depicting corporate drudgery on film, but also this kind of like crazy tech anxiety, but everything was still like, you know, shitty, low, lo fi, you know, AOL dial up internet and everything. I'm probably getting the date, the times wrong or anything, but anyway, the, the time, those times are, are extremely fascinating to me. And I think we've been thinking for years about an idea of how to set a horror movie during Y2K because it's such a bizarre phenomenon. And yeah, I remember thinking that like, you know, um, in the U.S. here, I think it was also the year, either the year of Columbine or the year after Columbine and then like immediately before 9-11, obviously. So it's just like, it was just like one of those things where I was like, oh, yeah, that was the year that it started to feel like the world was ending and then it just never really stopped. And so for the last 20 years, it's just sort of been perpetually feeling like the world was going to end. Um, so I don't know if that's the kind of thing you were looking for, but I was that was what I was reflecting on this morning whenever, uh, whenever I saw the question.
0: Well, I uh, actually followed the rules and probably predictably have a much less interesting story. Uh, which is, it's not even a story. I just, I think when I turned twenty was the first time that I took a film class. So,
1: and was that was that sort of um, a big moment in the sense of you know was wanted to or did it did it did it did it did it not feel remotely significant? Until, like, you sort of think now, looking back, you're like, oh,
0: right, yeah, that was my first one. Um, I had always, uh, not always, but I had, since, since a pretty young age, wanted to just do photography. My mm-hmm. and um, I would make these very strange, uh, especially for, you know, 12 and 13-year-old boys, uh, very strange little, little movies. Um, but I never sort of considered that that would be a sort of creative expression for me. Uh, and then, then when I first took a actual sort of film production class, I, I was obviously quite enamored with it, and uh, have, have been doing it ever since. Fantastic, fantastic. Well, just thinking, just reflecting
1: on the on the Y2K point. I, at that time I was working in government, and it was it was like the world was going to end. I felt it every day, certainly in the last four months of the year of 1999.
2: Yeah, it's funny. It seems like this like sort of joke now, but if you look at like the cover of Time magazine from the like from December of twenty nineteen or, or nineteen eighty nine, it's like like people legitimately thought the world was going to end. And I and I think the um the the anxiety of not knowing what our technology can do and to what extent we've sort of uh, given it sovereignty over our lives, you know, I think that anxiety is still with us. Like, like you know, it's like we all have these smartphones and shit, but very few of us know how they actually work or what how much data they're actually collecting for, from us and all of that kind of. Thing And so I think, like, that, that was, it's, in a way, it's like the birth of this technological anxiety in this big kind of, like, um, you know, sort of, like, explosive world-ending package, you know. And, uh, and so I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's been interesting. Cause I'm, I'm sure, like, people who lived through the Cold War had a similar sort of fear with the bomb and, you know, that kind of sense that the world was always almost ending – um, but yeah, it seems like maybe like through like my like childhood that was gone after the end of the Cold War, and then mm. and then kind of really ramped back up there in '99, and and uh, has yeah like I mean just every every year has felt like more absurd and outlandish, and now we live in this like sort of weird hellscape where it feels like maybe the world already ending ended, and we're living in some sort of like fever dream of its like you know dying consciousness or something. So. You know, it's pretty cool. It's a pretty cool time to be alive, I guess. It's fervent. Yeah. It's
1: fervent for it's fervent for, uh, for the writers of the world, isn't it? You can't make <laughs> it. it, you, can't make it up, you can't make it up anymore. Yeah,
0: it, it, it's tough. I mean, you you really um like like when your president is on stage looking at a baby dressed in like a QAnon outfit and saying like, "What a beautiful baby." I, I don't. It, it does pose a challenge of like, what do you even say about that? You certainly can't – you can't like make a joke. I mean I, 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 I don't envy people who write for shows like Saturday Night Live or something who are, who are being mm. tasked with poking, poking fun at that stuff because it's, it just feels sort of uh, – how, how would you turn that into satire? I, I have no idea.
2: That, and that particular incident, that was like, that was like Trump having a normal one. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like he's, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a, a pretty standard day in the life of, but, um, but yeah, it's like, it, it really is hard to imagine Well, then, when Trump got elected, there was this sense that it was like, Ooh, there's going to be all this like, like great, like punk rock, like energy and art. And like, there's going to be this like great resistance stuff. in in um, in, in, uh, in like art and cinema and music and, um, kind of just like, kind of, you know, like looking back on it, you know, you're like, like thinking about like how many good movies there are about the Iraq war. And it's like, I don't know, it's like there's the Catherine Bigelow movies and like anything else. Like, I, you know, like it turns out like I think protest art's kind of shitty, weirdly. Um, I was sort of reflecting on this a lot watching, after watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood last night and being like, oh yeah, like I, I think on some level that's maybe what this movie's about is that the protest art. It's,
0: it's mostly shitty but
2: um but yeah anyway trying to trying to make fun of trump is like you know it's yeah it's it's like if a guy has already has his pants down and his like tiny penis is flailing in the wind you're like whoa ha, 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 you know i mean like you can't really like there's no joke to be made other than look at that so
1: porno's playing at fright Fest. we've now done 20 years we've given a synopsis so as co-writers of it um do you want to do you want to give us um the the sort of kernel of an idea that 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 you can you can sort of all roads lead back to when you look when you see the finished film and you look back and you go yeah that was the bit when we were like oh we're on the road to making porno
0: yeah it's it's actually pretty well the reviews keep giving away one of the one of the best gags mm-hmm. in our movie. So I guess I can can freely sort of give it away here. Well, um, let me
1: tell you before you do. I've not seen the film because I didn't want to be a spoiler. Because I do this quite a lot with these previews. Oh, so you don't tell. So if you don't want, you don't to, if you don't, if you don't want to spoil, then don't. Um,
0: I was just going to say it was when we called Kayla, the director, and we were like, "Hey, man, we have this sort of crazy situation. Do you want to come to LA so we can make a movie?" Yeah. And uh, and he said yes, but. Only if uh, basically some horrible stuff happens. Uh, some genital mutilation. He he he, re-
2: he requested a certain kind of genital mutilation, and we ended up writing multiple male genital mutilations into the film. So it's uh, we we did we did him we did him one uh, one better actually or two better I think. I don't so it's sort of sure.
0: all roads lead to Rome, uh, sort of. Uh, you know, so, I'll, so I'll go make a film if
1: you mutilate genitals. Is that kind of the conversation?
0: More or less, yeah.
2: <laughs> like I, I need and testicles ripped off and exploded or else I walk. Um, but the actual kernel of the idea, it, it had been sort of floating around uh, for a while. Lawrence and I kind of keep this spreadsheet we have of like, I don't know, 60 or 70 horror ideas that we kind of like sort of pluck from whenever it's time to write a new spec or something. And so... Um, or pitch or something, and so uh, we had had this idea that it was just untitled haunted porno theater project that was like on the list and it had been on the list for for years um, because Lawrence had come across this article about uh, this psychological experiment that was done, I believe, in the UK, right, Lawrence? Uh,
0: I, I I believe so. I, I don't I don't mean to give too much credit to you guys, but I do think. Uh... <laughs> You could, this, this uh, do you <laughs> think that it's the genesis yeah. of this project uh, way back in the day uh, started in your country?
2: Yeah, so the, the idea was that they had this um, – they, 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 they had a guy dressed as a sort of monster, like, uh, like a ghost type of figure, yeah. and run through a porn theater uh, and, and uh, sort of detest people's like, attention. And so it's like if you're focused on watching the pornography, uh, will you notice the ghoul running around in a mask uh, in the theater? And a surprisingly large number of people did not notice it. And so I think we just took it at its most literal and was like, oh, yeah, a ghost in a haunted porno theater. Like, cool, let's do that. And so then, yeah, the early sort of iteration of it that we didn't write, uh, obviously, is um, it was sort of like a stand-by-me type of thing where these kids from, like, you know, suburban New Jersey hear about this sort of, like, mythical porn theater. And it's set. It was always it was always set in the 90s. And so it was this kind of idea of, like, Giuliani's cleanup of New York and the 42nd Street was, you know, Times Square was turning into the Disney, Disnified version of itself. And they were closing up all the porn shops and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so the, the whole thing was, it was like, maybe it was like the last day this porn theater was open. And so they, uh, they, they sort of did like a, yeah, like a stand by me quest to like get over to New York and like, find this, uh, uh, porn theater. And then, yeah, they either, you know, basically what happens in the movie happens, but it just had sort of a longer preamble. And so, yeah, based on our budgetary constraints, um, we sort of realized that it should take place in one location. Hmm. And we had actually been watching the autopsy of Jane Doe, or I, I, I think I had watched it and then, and then, or once and I had watched it, and then we sort of made Kayla watch it with us, um, because they do so well. It's like one of the few, like contained, all in one location, things that really works and feels like it doesn't need that it really doesn't need to go outside of this one location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so took some inspiration from that in terms of the way that they structured it and um, sort of having the sort of um, like evil thing that, that you're trapped in the house with and can't get away from, and you know the kind of clever ways that they keep the people in the in the house and all that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, that was kind of those 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 were, that's sort of the whole story, probably longer than needed, but. <laughs>
0: Matt was Matt was like, like, uh, you really should read any bakers, the flick, which is a play, which is, which is wonderful. And I think that helped us sort of, it's, you know, it's just this wonderful sort of little, little quiet portrait of these, of these people who work in a, in a movie theater. And I think that was another sort of inspiration for, for keeping it contained and sort of seeing the ways that you could, you could do something really, um, juicy and emotional, uh, yeah, our, our
2: projectionist yeah. character is like is not is not in small part based on the on the projectionist character in, in that play, and, and I mean he's he's our guy is much more absurd and silly and over the top, but um, but um, you know I think the sort of general sadness and like too old to be working here kind of vibe uh, came from came from Annie Baker's play, which is fantastic, and we in no way got anywhere close to that, but um, yeah, that was another one.
1: So uh, you two, if you t- you two are sort of. Working together. How? How then? Once you're sort of committed to do something, what's your what's your approach to developing a screenplay out from that? Because obviously, the way you describe it is you're taking like a very sort of slight idea that you've got like the sort of a tempo for you to sort of build off. But so, what, what, how
0: do you approach that between the pair of you? It really depends project to project, and I think I think for us um, being open minded about what is the best process for each project and in its various particulars is, is maybe the most important thing. And, and so for this particular project, we had a really crazy deadline. Hmm. So, and we also knew that, um, you know, Kay, the the two of us and Kayola, the director are really good friends and we lived together for a long time back when we all lived in, in Brooklyn. And, and so we we in no way wanted to give him a script that he didn't like and, and for him to go do for his first feature so he the three of us really sort of took that german of, of an idea and turned it into what it is uh together mm. and that basically um chris the producer had uh rented this airbnb in silver lake with this uh it, its most helpful feature was that had these glass doors and walls kind of across most of the, of the first oh, it's floor like windows all around. Beautiful. So we basically spent a week just absolutely stinking up this place. Um, and basically taking dry erase markers and cracking, cracking this sort of big stuff like the characters and the structure, uh, the three of us and we did that for maybe three or four days. And then Matt and I went And I think we did we break it up by sequence or by storyline? I I don't actually remember sequence. So we basically
2: both because the yeah, but yes, it was sequence.
0: Basically, you know, we broke the script down into eight sequences, and then we would alternate. So one of us would do the first, then the next one would do the second. Then then we sort of reread those, make sure they're okay, then move on to the third and fourth. And so we wrote the first draft in five days. Jeez. yeah, and then we spent um, maybe three weeks working with Kaola, uh, um, kind of really getting into there and 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 tweaking and rewriting. Some sequences got completely rewritten, some of them didn't, and um, some parts, like the ending, got rewritten a lot. And yeah, so it's I, I, if it sounds messy, it was a bit of – because it was a bit of a – it was sort of just this chaotic, like, let's just do this and – we didn't really have time to be incredibly deliberate, which hopefully helps the film more than than it hurts. Yeah, and
2: there's also, there was also a period of, like, you know, that we had written a movie for a certain budget, and, the, you know, it, the sort of other, the you know... Luckily, we actually didn't get any... We didn't get a ton of, like, script notes in terms of, like, creative notes, actually. Hmm. Like, they, they were they were very generous and very trusting, and they kind of just let the three of us, you know, and, and ultimately Keola just kind of make the movie that we wanted to make um which is great but um there was a period where you know lawrence and i were working on a couple of we were developing a couple of tv projects and we were off like about to go pitch one of those and so we were like sort of had our heads fully in that in la while they were shooting in new york and i think kaola called us one day and was like okay (laughs) here are the like 11 scenes we just can't do because we don't have the money (laughs) okay okay. and did like another round of revisions with him where we kind of like wrote up some new scenes in isolation and sent them to him and he gave us notes and blah, blah, blah. And so, we, you know, he very much like ended up crafting the final document himself uh, to a large extent, you, you know, and we, we gave gave our assistance where we could. But um, but yeah, that was like the, that was the, the, the final revision was the like, oh shit, what can we actually afford to do? Can you can uh, you give r- an example of,
1: of what, what, is, what wasn't affordable, as it were, and then sort of how you, what you changed it to?
2: Um... I can think of I can think of a couple that there there was um a lot of it was was effects so it was like um the uh, there's a sequence toward the end where they end up in this kind of like you know alternate reality kind of thing and there was supposed to be like a, a winged demon creature that like swooped down and like picked up these innocent bystanders off the street and that was how you knew you were in you know like upside down world or whatever yeah and uh, there was some stuff like that where it was like okay like we we can't do like if we want to do a winged demon creature we're gonna to have to like get rid of one of the characters or something, you know what I mean? It's like okay. we have to like do some, some sort of crazy compromise in order to get some of these things. So we sort of realized that. And then, you know, like, um, yeah, because it's horror, I think it was a lot of prosthetics and stuff we had imagined would, you know, that would be easier to do than we thought. But then also Kayla, like the two that I really think he invested in, I think, look pretty great given given the, the budget they have. So, yeah, that's, that's what I remember. Lawrence, do you remember anything else that we had to cut for
0: time or money? There, is that, there was a coda that took place in the woods, not in the movie theater. And Kaola called us and was like, look, I, I, as, I know this sounds crazy, but I don't think we had the money to shoot this in the woods. Like, how can we reconceive this scene so it all happens that night? And, mm. um, and I, he did I, – I, it is really wonderful that – uh Kayla is such a good writer because it's his ideas and and even he I think for that ending he even took the first pass and sort of sent us what he had written up so I don't I don't wish that it took place in the woods I think what we have is is better so with you
1: uh, with you having evil unleashed as it were in your story um and and the idea of um of an alluring succubus, as it's described on on the NDB thing. Um, what what did you, where did you go to for the rules of the game, as it were? Because obviously, I'm guessing the people that, that unleash it are innocent and no fuck all, and the evil that's unleashed knows its own rules. So, how did you go about sort of where did you lean on, as it were, to find your, you know to create the rules of your your antagonist force, spirit, or whatever?
0: Well, I, I, I don't think Matt and I are are big uh, on sort of like – we find it sort of pedantic, I think, to, to sort of uh, force a horror movie to conform to really strict rules and risk suffering sort of what the whole point of it is, which is to explore the emotions and the fun and the sort of big stuff. So I, I think in the beginning we were – for us the main rules were that this antagonist was going to be the worst thing that could happen to each one of our characters and that it's sort of unique properties is that the succubus doesn't have just one form, but that the succubus is able to sort of tempt each character uh, in a way that will sort of find their, their weak spot. So that I guess is the, Right, Matt. Does that sound like the yeah? Sort of- I also think that we generally this is this is our oh,
2: I don't know sixth or something horror feature we've written and, like probably twentieth horror feature we've like broken but not written or whatever. Yeah. Um. So so it, it feels like it's like um we, we've we've developed our own kind of like um I, I don't know sort of like house style in terms of horror movies. This, this is just the person that's actually gotten made. Right. But um. But, but yeah. So I think one of the big things is like when you've got a lot of our horror stuff is like is is fully uh material like it's like there is no supernatural thing and so you know those rules are obviously cleaner Mm -hmm. but when we deal with supernatural i think we generally try to think we try to reverse engineer right so you try to think okay like you've got a sex demon in a movie theater with a bunch of christian teens what are the three or four craziest like set pieces you can think of what are the most fun things that an audience is going to go holy shit when they see it you know Right. And then you sort of be like, OK, she did that to this person, that to this person and that to this person. OK, so then, does that mean that she is like has a physical manifestation or is she a shapeshifter or blah, blah, blah. And so then we kind of just like craft the rules in relation, like, you know, kind of reverse engineer the rules from what we have and then sort of tweak the kills and the sort of scary stuff in order to sort of fit those those rules. And so far as there there are rules, because, yeah, like, you know, there's the, the, the ending of the movie hinges on one of the characters realizing like, Oh, because of this rule I can do this thing to her. You know, it's like how they figure mm-hmm. out how to get to to fight her, right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. the rules are there. Um but yeah, like I think what Lawrence was saying about like the sort of the, the, the sort of um, I feel like movies nowadays because of the internet, um, you know, it, it, it's like it's like this, this contest to, like poke holes in the plot of a film and sort of f- find plot holes and find like ir- irrational things or inconsistencies or whatever. Um, which is like a fun game and I, I engage in it as well. Um, but I, I do think that I, I think I read something about it was, it was like a commentary on Lovecraft. I can't even remember who wrote it, but I, I read something recently about Lovecraft where they were saying how, sort of the structure of a lot of his stories are like, you know, you, you're, you're in the normal world, you're in the recognizable world. And then once the sort of, you know, supernatural force is introduced, uh, like a madness sort of descends. Hmm. And it doesn't just affect the characters, it sort of affects the logic of the story too. And so the story develops this sort of like dreamlike kind of nightmare logic or whatever. And then generally it coheres back into something relatively explicable in the end. And um, I actually just read the the short story or the novella that Candyman is based on, and it kind of does the same thing. It sort of like it sort of goes out into this kind of like untethered place, story wise, and sort of comes back at the end, and is like, no, no, here's the real world again. And so I think, you know, in terms of rules, I think we do try and stay away from like, kind of like getting overly like, religious about the rules and stuff and feeling... Because like, I, I do feel like you can ruin a fun thing by over-explaining it to audiences, so... so no, yeah. but, but what you've described is a set, what you said it
1: was, which is the worst thing that can happen to the to the people who become victims, is essentially, you know, George Orwell's Room 101, isn't it? Sure, yeah, It's absolutely. Like, It's like, what's the worst thing that can happen to you? Well, it's just Room mm-hmm. One. <laughs> so that makes perfect sense. I mean, that's... I mean,
0: we, we are definitely not uh, – if we somehow claim to have uh, discovered a, a sort of great idea about screenwriting, uh, I apologize because it is true. Uh. That, is, that is literally the, one of the most basic things you should do. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 write. no. no. It wasn't a criticism. It was more the no, fact no, no, no. First, that, that – I think, just think the point, I think, what, I think maybe the most succinct way of saying what we're trying to say is just what's fun about a horror movie is the way you manifest things and exactly. so yeah. to sort of sublimate that under the sort of logic of this horror when the horror is like we made up that a sex monster comes out of a film reel it's kind of like is that really the most sort of uh, important part of this film like the this sort of the realism of it like no we hope not, but maybe for some people they, you know, they don't. That doesn't resonate with them. But, but I'll, look, I'm, I'm
1: on I'm on your side. I I've, I've had these conversations about a demon I had coming out of the grooves of an old '78 record, and <laughs> you know, trying to trying to. I, I understand providence and stuff, but then you can bog yourself down too much in lot in just logic when it's. Uh, I mean, I think even as daft as it is, like you know. I remember people sort of going over the top about Jurassic World, and you're like, it's about reanimating dinosaurs for Christ's sake. Whatever you do after that is all, is, is ridiculous on top of madness. You know, it's like it's not. It's uh, yeah, no, I, uh, it's a fine line, and I get it that, that sometimes things fall apart. But obviously, if your characters are behaving like the characters should, then all the madness you, you surround them with is is
2: there to draw that out, isn't it? I suppose is what you're saying. Totally, and the the characters that was I and mean, that was another big thing. I mean, like, and this is another like sort of general screenwriting axiom that like is probably self evident. But like, one of our professors um in film school who was uh, who wrote Boys Don't Cry is this really amazing screenwriting professor, hmm. named Andy, Andy Bean, and and he uh, he would often say like, why does this story need to happen to your characters? Which again you know, is one of these like sort of general kind of like you know axioms or whatever. But you know, I think we we looked at it and we were like, okay we want to have a sex monster, yes. We, we want to have an alluring succubus, as the, as the, the description says. So who, is, who needs that story to happen to them? So repressed Christian teens became, that's sort of how we ended up with those characters, is because we're like, hey, why does this story need to happen to these people? So that was the gen- that, genesis of that. Um, how, much, how much fun did you have writing in a time that predates
1: all that misery that we've had since Y2K? I mean, yeah.
0: I think the, the real innocence for these kids um, I think at least in the way we sort of imagined it is it's a time before internet pornography so I, I don't think that this story could have been told in the same way it would today where you know our our protagonists just really have no idea what pro- what pornography is or what it looks like mm. and sort of the, in that time if you want if you were a teenager and you wanted to see pornography you really did kind of have to Seek it out in some quest-like manner, whereas now you just have to, you know, open up a device. I don't know if so, it's the same
1: in America, but but when I was a kid, it was it was in a bag in a bush on a country road.
2: You could yeah, totally. It. I, it's like somebody's somebody's dad had to had, had you defined it in someone's dad's bedroom. I think was the was the the <laughs> American suburbia version. You know what I mean? Like that was like someone's dad had a stash somewhere. It was stolen, and then it became the collective property of all the boys in the friend group, that was, that was generally how that went, uh, for us, but yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I think the the kids need to be, like, you know, because there's, there's a line where they watch this, like, obviously, like, like, ritualistic devil movie, uh, with, 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 that happens to have some, some nudity in it, and one of the characters says to the other, is, like, is that what all pornography is like, and we really wanted them to have that kind of, like, you know, absurd naivete, uh, when it came to, to, to you know, exposure to pornography, but yeah, also, I mean, you know, I think the reason, um, the 90s, uh, and the 80s are, are such a um, kind of, like, like, lush place right now. It's, like, it's, it's such a common thing to see on screen right now. It's because, you know, first of all, like, all the people who are, you know, making uh, things are our age, roughly, and, you know, for the most part, and they're making movies about their childhood. So it was interesting to make a movie about our childhood. Like, I remember going to the two-screen theater in my suburban hometown um, but also like it just you know it, it it just simplifies things so much to not have to deal with modern technology and, and it's not just like oh why don't they call someone like oh why don't they you know you know why don't they text their text the police or something you know like, it's like, it's not just that it's like like I'm just it, it's so. Um, like, it's such a slog and so grueling to see screens all the time in movies and it's like you know you can't I mean if you make a modern movie without showing screens all the time then you're sort of being dishonest to the experience of being alive because we do spend most of our day looking at fucking screens so um yeah so I think that was it was like a, it was a freedom to do it, it was it yeah it, it had like a sort of innocence and, and a freedom that that was really appealing to us and I think we had originally done the 90s because of that Giuliani-inspired idea I mentioned earlier, but then we just sort of stuck with it because it had so many things we like. So,
1: Interestingly, I was listening to um, Mark Moran's podcast, recent episode, with the author of the book Fantasyland, which is kind of a... <laughs> Interestingly, you might want to read it. It's essentially about how fucked up the world's become since we've become so manipulated by um, globalised media. And the like, but he talks about Giuliani's zero, you know, zero tolerance policy and the and the the cleaning up of the flea Pits of uh, the uh, square. Is it Forty Second Street and Madison Square? Is it Madison Square Gardens or is it is it Uh, Times Square? Times Square, sorry. Um, Which I never. I went first went to Times Square ninety four, which I think is probably when ninety five. Sorry, where it's on the cusp of cleaning up because it didn't feel as mad as I'd read about it. but the guy was just, just, just to, to get to the point. He was there was like this romantic idea that it was somehow more real back then and stuff. Um, and then he says, "But if you look at the figures, he said murder rates down eighty seven percent in New York in Manhattan. <laughs>
0: yeah. So
1: it's kind of like is 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 a whole load of Beth, <laughs> Bath and Beyond and Starbucks the price worth paying for eighty seven percent less deaths? <laughs>
0: Well, well I I, would
2: see the, I, would, the, the, I would, the New York is a, uh, a playground for the the rich and the powerful and that the that uh, the, the police and the state are sort of set up to protect those people so that that would be my guess as to why the murder rates dropped but that that's uh, that's just one man's
1: opinion No 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 I mean I did see th- I did see through his his wet tissue paper but I did like the figure uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> The figure's good I mean, I don't I would hope that um, it doesn't take like opening like a a giant guy fieri uh, restaurant in a building owned by Jared kushner uh, in order to <laughs> you know reduce murder rates um, I, I I would hope that that 's a a spurious connection but but he does have some't
2: think so I, you don 't think bed Bath and beyonds come in because of you know for the same reason that murder rates drop that actually feels like a it 's like you know if you if you if, if you if 're bringing if if capital is moving toward a place and uh and comfort is is coming along with it it makes sense that the uh that the apparatus of power would need to protect that right like that's who
0: that's the police can i just say
1: when i first came across that was the first time i would ever seen that shot they never they never they never came over here one of the things you've not exported to us yet is bed bath and beyond and and i was i was when i when i saw that in the early noughties um i was like who the fuck wants a big three-story bathroom store (laughs) In
2: the middle of a city.
1: <laughs> in the middle of a city.
2: <laughs> I mean, if you could, if you could just like, if you could take all of the open air toilets for a test drive, that would be that would be pretty amazing. But yeah, no, I mean, it's 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 a horrifying place, but uh, but also get weirdly comforting. Like that in the that in the Container Store are the two stores that feel like, oh yes, my life could be orderly. Like things could be if I could just if I just had the right bathroom caddy, like my my I could really get my shit together. Um, nice.
0: Since we, we we mentioned Orwell earlier, mm. it does just make me feel like, like man, like our dystopian future that he sort of imagined is just so much more mundane and boring than <laughs> like, you know, it's like yeah, we have like people be like, well, do you want murder or do you want Bed Bath and Beyond? Is just like <laughs> that's, that's the dichotomy, and you're like, fuck, man, like I, I, obviously we don't want murder, but like. This shit sucks. You know this. This is really sterile.
1: Which is the Ray Bradbury book, Fahrenheit Four Five One, isn't it? Yes.
0: Yes. Yeah.
1: So his, yeah. his his dystopia is where books are banned, and you can't read anything anymore. Yeah, and that's what Fifty Seven. He wrote that. And if you look now, we've basically just voluntarily stopped reading books, without <laughs> needing, without needing to ban them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's like it's like they couldn't imagine just. I don't know why, but just they couldn't imagine how willing we would be to just sort of enact these things on ourselves.
1: Yeah, it's like you know, it's like, it's like someone someone could have dropped. If, if if you wanted to drop a, like a, a a potion into the water, it'd be like, can I get rid of critical thinking? Let's put a magic. No, we don't have to. We just we just won't show any interest in it, and
2: see if they follow <laughs> and see if they follow our lead. Well, it's also like the, you know Orwell's idea about the surveillance state and, and everything. You know, like it's like it's this thing that's imposed upon the people. When in fact, like the way it worked is we just voluntarily gave up all of our information uh, to, to giant social media corporations. And so that's how the surveillance state happened for the most part, it seems. So that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, same thing. Didn't have to. Didn't have to force it on us. We just we just did it voluntarily. <laughs> I'm going
1: I'm I'm to steer us off this digression, as much as I'm enjoying it, um, and it was me that started it, so apologies. Um, just what, on, on a kind of on a kind of, um, sort of kind of nomenclature, note, we talked before we started recording about you being both the writers and exec producers. So, can you can you give, in terms of what your role was by getting the net, the, the, the title of executive producer, what does it what does it mean compared to say the producer?
2: Um, it, I think it varies from from project to project, and, and in the U.S., I know versus the U.K. that the, the sort of um, the, the the that title with regards to television, I think, is is <coughs> quite a bit different.
0: Um,
2: <coughs> sorry, the title in television, I think, in the U.S. is, is a very you know uh, coveted uh, uh, and, and high high up uh, position, but in, in films, I, I think it generally refers to people who dealt with. The financing, or were themselves financiers, um, and it's sort of like you know somewhere between producer and associate producer, which is kind of like a. The joke is that the associate producer is like what you give your assistant instead of a Christmas gift, <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, so uh, you know, so I think a full producer generally like works, you know, develops the the script from. It's most nascent stages and all that kind of stuff. And so, yeah, I think the t- we landed on the title because it sort of had um, – it sort of reflected kind of a combination of the two things that, that we did because we did sort of develop the idea, obviously, and, you know, um, uh, the um, genesis of it was that a, a producer that we'd worked with before um, had um, – you know, found a financier who was willing to um, put some money into a horror movie, but the 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 sort of um, what's the was sort of contingent on the idea that the movie would be done by the end of the year. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I think I think the producer called us up, and we you know it's like this chain of like the producer called us up and was like, uh, "What do you what do you think about this idea?" And I think he thought we were going to call his bluff, and we were like, "Ah, it seems good. We can do that." And the end of the year, it was like July at that point. <laughs> And uh, and and then he was like, okay, cool. And so then we we all three uh, decided to, uh, to to approach Keola about directing it. And we called him, sort of thinking he would call our bluff. And he was like, oh no, that seems cool. I'll fly out next week, you know. And so suddenly we were we were rolling, and we were you know, um, it it became uh, something that came it, that uh, sort of put itself together fairly quickly. And so. Um, yeah, I think I don't know what what other is that does that Lawrence does that
0: uh, summarize our executive producing roles? Do you? Yeah, I mean I think just if you know if, if anyone is is listening to this and is in a similar position, you know there there are projects where someone has an idea and they're looking for a writer and they hire you and they pay you and then you sort of give them the script back and then you walk away and that's your contribution. You 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 wrote it, and I think you know trying to get an EP credit is not trying to in any way sort of suggest that you've produced something when you haven't, but I think it's a way to sort of ensure that you are going to remain a part of the project uh, through its completion. And And so we weren't on set we, you know, we have no authority to dictate anything in terms of the cut or anything like that, but we have stayed a part of the project and we've tried to be as helpful as we can, whether it's creatively or it's just sort of, you know, getting the film to go, uh, ready when we go to festivals and thinking about promotion and all those kinds of things. So I think it just sort of emphasizes more of a, a we feel a sense of responsibility and ownership about the film and we want to do everything we can to help the film to be as successful as possible, which, you know, when you're doing low-budget horror films, you're not, you know, you're not getting uh, paid a, a, an amount of money that you're really going to be able to live off of. So I think the the importance for us is just that we, we want the film to be as good as possible. And I think maybe that, does that sound like reasonable?
2: And I think the, the the full, the two full producers, uh, uh, Chris Cole and Sarah O, have been very gracious in sort of like bringing us into a lot of the discussions that, you know, I think um, as sort of like, this is, you know, this is our first time with a, you know, feature uh, feature producing credit. So um, they've been really gracious in like, in sort of like, you know, sort of showing us the ropes and bringing us in, to a lot of conversations that, that maybe we wouldn't have otherwise had access to. So we've been on, you know, a lot of the calls about um, the, you know, like uh, <clears throat> the distribution calls and and uh, uh, advertising and, um, you know, uh, I have been running our social media uh, to some extent along with uh, another friend of ours. And so it's like, we've just been, you know, it's it really is like the five of us sort of, you know, um, wearing a bunch of hats and, and, uh, and, and everyone's sort of just contributing where they, they think they can be helpful. And, uh, and, unfortunately everyone's like super open to that and to the contributions of other people. So it's, it is a very, like, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a good generous group of people who all have a, a pretty wide, uh, array of talents. So, so yeah, I think sometimes those roles bleed, you know, who does what bleeds a little bit, but, um, but yeah.
1: Given, given, we are in the frightening twenty first century of two thousand and nineteen, and the internet being such a, a, a beast that it is, and pornography being such a popular choice when people Google, how how are you out of interest? How do you get a film called Porno to uh, to be at the top of searches?
0: It's funny you ask this because this has been a, uh, an ongoing thing, an ongoing discussion that we've had since we came up with the title and has continued um, as we move into the next phase with distribution and, and mm. all that kind of stuff. And, I mean, I think the, the answer is that there are people who tell us that this is a big mistake and that mm-hmm. people won't be able, to be able to find the film. But we have sort of always believed that we thought porno was the perfect title for this film aside from anything calculating but you know when we went to South by and there are i don't i don't know the exact number, but there are dozens of films, and one is called porno it's a way for a film with you know it doesn't have um big name cast in it and it's a very low budget genre film it's a way for that film hopefully to to stand out a little bit and it, the title is slightly provocative and we we think the film is slightly pr- provocative so If people can't just Google the word porno and find the film, we think that whatever we lose, you know, if, I don't know, I feel like people are gonna find the film anyway, but you know, we can't, for example, advertise on Instagram because they don't allow the word porno. So our Instagram account is heavy metal Jeff, which is the name of one of our our characters.
1: Get out of town, is that true?
2: About Instagram?
0: Yes. Yes. Yes.
2: They, they don't allow the word. Yeah, what's interesting about the word is that it's like it's you know it's it's not porn, it's porno. So it's like this kind of antiquated word that people don't really even use. So there's been this big kind of like weird test to see what will what platforms will let it go and what platforms yeah. won't. Like like our ha- our Twitter handle and this is these are some now shameless plugs for our social media. No, please. But, uh, our, our, our Twitter handle is at porno the movie and we've had no problems with that and then in the in the sort of bio on instagram we say porno the movie so it's it, we could say it on the account but we couldn't have the name so it's interesting so and then and then i, I you know I, i've talked to people in in social media marketing and they're like yeah it will probably get flagged i don't you ha- you'd have to try to see and so there's a lot of that stuff too like like certain platforms like you know big platforms like amazon and and uh, itunes we've Heard from people that it's like they may bury the title because of because of it, but it, it's kind of like it, it's all because it is this name, you know. The the title's not like go fuck yourself, you know. It's like it's not something that's obviously going to get banned. It, yeah, 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 it, yeah. It's not
1: fuck, It's not fuck buddy, is it or something? Yeah, yeah,
2: exactly. So 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 it's been this kind of interesting thing where, where um everyone's like, yeah, we think it might get, you know, this this platform might not carry it, but we don't know for sure yet. So there's been a lot of that, and so I think we've sort of, our, our position has been like, you know, there's been a, a, a pretty, we've been, been blessed to have a pretty nice festival run on the genre circuit, uh, Fright Fest being a, a big one of those. Hmm. Um, and, um, you know, the title has been, uh, I think, you know, since, since the title has been out there in that way, if anyone did hear about it on the festival circuit, but didn't get a chance to see it, and then they look, they start looking for it when it, when it hits VOD or hits theaters, um, then, and the title's changed, then it feels like we're going to lose whatever momentum we've built with with the, with the existing title. So so that's the kind of balance of it. But yeah, you know, if you you know, in terms of SEO, in terms of uh, searching, just googling the word porno. I mean, I'm hopefully I'm hoping that people don't just go to Google.com and just type in the word porno. Like presumably they'll you know do what most people do when you're looking for a movie online is go like porno 2019 streaming or something. You know, or, or porno movie 2019 or something. So like uh, still might still, still might not give you what you want. Or maybe it will give you something else. I'm just just
1: laughing to myself as you're talking all this. Given we've talked about Ray Bradbury and George Orwell, imagine what they're thinking listening down on this. If they're listening to this conversation in the spirit world, they've just heard us just talk about the one-word porno and and the power or weakness of using the one word and how big conglomerates are going to either okay or not okay one word. It's fucking insane, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs)
2: Yeah, but we knew it was a risk. So yeah, a yeah, job. yeah.
1: Well, hats off for, to you for uh, being the canary in the cave for the rest of us. I mean, it was, in a sense, it was. It's a stronger word, but but uh, there's another film at fright fest called Fingers. Uh, this year, uh, American movie, which is a brilliant little movie. But it's like, if you search Fingers on the on Google, well, you're going to get a lot of Fingers. Yeah, right. a
2: friend of mine made a movie called The Dark last year. Ah, yeah. TV, yeah. And, and it's, a, it's a great film, and mm. he, uh, and it actually turned out to have done, I think, pretty well on VOD. But, you know, it's like, yeah, I think, you know, when you have a title like that, you're like, you, you just know that it's not going to be the easiest Google. Um, but, you know, you're hoping that, you know, the, the press that you've gotten and the sort of, you know, any sort of uh, quote-unquote buzz that you've built um, will um, steal the spine of the searcher, and the searcher will, will seek it until they find it. And that's kind of what we're, we're hoping for. We're also sort of hoping that, you know, assuming that the VOD platforms don't bury the title because of its title, um, that, you know, curious uh, teenage boys will be, you know, surfing VOD at night and be like, hmm, I wonder what this movie called Porno with this demon on the cover is. It seems interesting. So, um, you know, it might, it might cut both ways. We'll see.
0: Cool. Hopefully, hopefully not just boys. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully everyone out there. According to the IMDB analytics, the movie has been rated the most highly after
2: 18 year olds has been rated most highly by women ages 30 to 44. So um, I hope so, too. Uh, It it is it is uh, not intended entirely. Well, let's let's
1: tell in the immediate sense. Let's tell people when they can see your movie and where, Friday first. Prince Charles Discovery one Friday, the 23rd of August. And you're the last film of the evening. So you are showing from eleven fifteen. So you're the midnight movie on Friday the twenty third.
0: Great, and I know I don't know if Matt and I are going to be able to be there, but I do believe that uh, Kayla, the director, will be there. Okay. So hopefully he he's he's uh a producer, I think also. Yeah, Kayla is a real all star at the Q and A. So. It's worth, worth sticking around.
1: Well, tell if him if he sees anyone in a Bob
2: Seger T-shirt, it's likely to be me.
0: Okay. <laughs> he, he
2: also will be wearing a Bob Seger T-shirt. I'll, yeah. I'll, that way you guys can find each other easily. <laughs> I, I only wish that was true.
0: <laughs>
2: well, look, guys, thanks very much for your time on the podcast. Thank you so much for having us.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. The BritFlix
1: podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv.